Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are concluding our series on biblical wisdom with James Jordan, and here he's going to give a bit of a survey of the book of Ecclesiastes. Do know towards the end, there are a few minutes with some odd audio glitches that happen. I actually included the audio excerpt from Jim where he explains what happened here, and we just decided to keep that content in. But know that it is just a few minutes, and it will self-correct towards the end of this recording. We just wrapped up our Theopolitan Ministry Conference on Monday and Tuesday of this week. Our Wednesday episode of the podcast featured Peter Lightheart's lecture on shepherds and kings that we really think you'll be helped by. So be sure to check that out. And next week, we will showcase two other talks from that conference, one of which will be on Theopolitan church planning. So be sure to check back next week as we think those episodes will be a real help to you. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan giving a survey of the book of Ecclesiastes. I mentioned that the wisdom literature of Solomon should be seen as growing out of the Psalms, just as Deuteronomy grows out of the revelation of the law of God and Moses meditating on it for a generation of time. So David and Korah and Asaph, the other Psalm writers, the sons of Korah, produce the bulk of the Psalter, and it's been sung now for 30 years years or so, 40 years before Solomon, for years before the temple is built, and then during the time the temple is built, the Psalms are being sung. I mean, imagine the temple's being built over here on Mount Moriah, and right on the next hill over here on Mount Zion is the Ark of the Covenant in its shrine, and there are musicians and singers around it singing the Psalms. These Psalms are being sung the whole time the temple's being built. So as we said before, the temple is like an architectural expression of the Psalter. But a wisdom literature grows out of this. This is what Solomon is hearing the whole time. So all this stuff in the Psalms about the enemy and how the enemy seems to be victorious, it's all grist for the mill of these later books. Psalm 45 about the king's daughter and the marriage of the king and how she's dressed... Well, the king is dressed in myrrh and aloes and cassia and ivory palaces and stringed instruments and all that. You can see that as background that's expanded in the Song of Solomon. Psalm 49, the folly of trusting in riches, this says. It's the psalm of the sons of Korah. Solomon is listening to this, verse 10 of Psalm 49. He sees that even wise men die, the stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. I mean, that's exactly stuff that's all over Ecclesiastes. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever, their dwelling places will last for all generations, but man and his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. Well, there's a whole section in Ecclesiastes about men perishing like beasts. This in chapter 3. I said to myself concerning the sons of Adam, God has surely tested them in order to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of Adam and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vapor. All go to the same place. All came from the dust, and all return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward, and the breath of beast ascends downward to the earth? How do you know that? That's his question. How do you know that 
man's breath ascends upward back to God and the breath of beast ascends downward to the earth. Well, you know that by faith alone, see. There's nothing by sight. That's just spinning out from what Solomon has heard all his life in Psalm 49. Of course, we know that actually all this literature was written three or four centuries later and none of this can be trusted, right? If that's your scenario, then the Bible is incoherent. The scenario that the Bible presents is that this is what Solomon has been learning his whole life. All this kind of stuff. And I'd like to point you to Psalm 73 because... This is by Asaph, again, a psalm that Solomon grew up with. And you know this psalm, I just couldn't remember the number of it this morning until I was informed of it. Someone who took the opportunity to ridicule me because I couldn't remember it. But at any rate, it talks about how the wicked are rich and prosperous. My feet almost slipped, says Asaph. When I was envious of the arrogant and I saw the prosperity of the wicked, there are no pains in their death. Their body's fat. I guess I'm wicked. They're not in trouble like other men. They're not plagued like mankind, like the sons of men. Their eye bulges from fatness. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They're on high. They rule. They're kings. They run the earth. Boy, Solomon has a lot to say about that. Verse 15, if I said I should speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight, until I came into the holy places of God. It's plural, because you see there are two sanctuaries operating at this time in history. <laughs> There's one, the tabernacles in Gibeah, and the ark is in Jerusalem. So he can say sanctuaries of God. Once the temple is built, there'd just be one. For us again, now there's many. I perceive their end and how it's within the temple next to God he sees the truth that the wicked will be punished and the righteous will be vindicated. Now I think that's important for Ecclesiastes. Let's remind ourselves of worship and wisdom. Worship is in the sanctuary Wisdom is out in the world. This is your knowledge of good and evil. Even at the end of Ecclesiastes, a kingly book, it says, God will judge everything you do, good and evil. See, he repeats the wisdom kingly phrase. Out here, everything is misty and things don't seem to work out. You can't look out here in this world of natural revelation. Just forget natural revelation if you want to understand reality. When you look out here at what goes on in the world, it doesn't tell you anything. How do you know from natural revelation whether the soul of beasts goes to the earth and the soul of man goes back to God? You don't. All this business of getting all kinds of information from nature and natural law is contradicted by reality. You can't. Where you get the information about ultimate reality is from the Word of God at the center of life. And so, Asaph says, when I looked out here in the world, I couldn't figure it out, and it made me angry and bitter. But when I came into the sanctuary, when I returned to the garden, when I feared God, that means worship as well as just plain being afraid. When I saw who God was and thought, whoa, 
He's going to call everything into judgment. When I bowed to Him and worshipped Him, when I came here and I ate, drank, and was merry at the feast, when I heard the words of wise men which are sharp and pointed and not misty at all, then I understood. So, that's the distinction. And Solomon is constantly pointing to that here. When you look out here, in society and in the world, it doesn't often make sense. When you come into the place of worship, you hear the scripture, you sit down at the feast, then you get the perspective and things make sense by faith. Because God tells you, He will come and He will set things right. So those two perspectives are governing Ecclesiastes. The eat, drink, and be merry refrain, the fear God refrain, those are the things that center you back at the garden, back at the sanctuary, back in the church as opposed to the kingdom. Now this is not quite the Kuyperian Calvinistic view that you've got state and the church and the family and the school and each one of them is its own separate thing operating out of the Bible. That's true to a certain extent, but it's also true the church is central. That there's confusion out here that there's not supposed to be here. Of course, even sermons can be confusing. But ultimately, it's the Word of God itself that's not, that is the absolute in the midst. And everything that begins to flow out from it can begin to partake of mist. Like, for instance, I won't have everything right this morning. I think I do, but I probably don't. As Doug Wilson says, I always think I'm right, but I don't think I'm always right. Think about that. All right, so let's just look into the book a little bit and see what he does here. And we'll just skim it for a while, and then I'll be done with what I'm going to do with Ecclesiastes. This is a slightly annotated translation here on page 15. That just means I have occasionally given you my opinion. And I've tried to translate it consistently instead of preacher, which is not what kahal means. This means to gather together. We've changed that to gatherer. Instead of vanity, we have mist or vapor. I've used vapor. Instead of pursuing wind, shepherding wind. Because that's the idea. Man seeks to shepherd the wind, to control it to make it do what it's supposed to do. And that's in contrast to the one shepherd at the end of the book who does have everything under control. I've italicized the phrase under the sun. In other words, marked out some of the themes in the book and given you the chiastic structures. But this first section here on page 15, at the center of it is the statement, all things are wearisome. And remember, we said from Genesis 1 that the themes of lighting, forming, and filling are coursing through this book. The world is filled by generations. Over time, it's filled up. And so the fact that the rich man lays up an inheritance for a fool or the fool lays up an inheritance for the rich man, all of these generational time things have to do with filling. Form has to do with structure. Man's attempt to shape and form the world governs those passages, and in light has to do with the sun and with rulers and governors who are the lights in the world. And these three themes then run through this book. At the center of this 
is the statement, all things are wearisome. And on either side of that are statements about filling. All the rivers flow into the sea, and yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. It's not getting filled up. And then matching that on the other side, man is not able to tell. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. The sea never gets filled up. You never get filled up with understanding. Out from that are two statements about form. Verse 6, blowing toward the south, turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. That's the form of the wind, the shape of it. It just goes round and round, goes to the south, goes back up to the north, in the northern hemisphere, counterclockwise. The southern hemisphere, I guess, would be the other way around. But we're in the northern hemisphere in the Bible. If you were in Australia, you'd have to translate this. Reverse those two verses, maybe. That's just a joke. I'm not serious. That would be dynamic equivalent translation. I am the taco of life and all these other uh, dynamic translations. Yeah. Instead of shepherd, you would have the, the guy who herds penguins. Something. Well, getting back to it here, the form is circular, and so it doesn't really have any form. And matching that in verse 9, that which has been is that which will be, that which has been done is that which will be done. But we're not changing anything. We're not forming anything. Then the life theme is on either side of that. In verse 5, also the sun rises, the sun sets, hastening to its place, it rises there again. So the sun isn't doing anything either. And then he matches that by saying there's nothing new under the sun. This whole section is about the fact that nothing is really changing, but still light, shape, and filling are the way he sets it out. And he says everything is wearisome. If we match that out on page 28, the matching section is chapter 11 where he continues to say creation can't be understood, but it's good and not wearisome under God. So he discusses filling at the beginning. Well, let's go to the center of it. It's on page 29. There's light on either side of this, and then he says it's not wearisome. So in 11 verse 7, he says light is pleasant. It's good for the eyes to see the sun. Well, you don't really want to look at the sun, but... And then he returns to that and says, Before the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are darkened. The light theme. But in the center, he says, life doesn't have to be wearisome. At the center of this, he says, Know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. That's the center of this section. All things are wearisome was his first reflection. Nah, no, no, no. If we look at things under the perspective of the judgment of God, then everything looks different. And so he starts off and says in A, 11 verse 8, Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them. And that's matched at the end, before the evil days come and the years draw near when you say, I have no rejoicing in them. I have no delight in them. That's the beginning and the end of this section. Moving in from that, the B sections, let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. And matching that, remember your creator in the days of your youth. 
parallel ideas. Coming in from that, he says, everything that is to come will be vapor. And he says, because childhood and the prime of life are vapor. They're vapor. You can't control them. So live by faith. And at the center of it, then, he says, D, rejoice, young man, during your childhood and let your heart be pleasant during days of young manhood. Follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. But know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. And then again, remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body. So enjoy the pleasant things, but remember that God will bring you to judgment. Now that's not the same as saying everything just continues all along and it's all wearisome. He still says, yeah, it's vapor, but it's not wearisome. God is going to bring an explanation to it all. God is going to bring it all under judgment. And so you can rejoice in all of it, even when things are not very pleasant. The imagery of clouds and weather is used in the two form sections. In 12 verse 2, he just mentions it, clouds return after rain. But that's picking up what he's already said in 11, 3 to 6. If clouds are full, they pour out rain on the earth. Whether a tree falls toward the north, south, or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. So there's that north and south stuff again. He who watches the wind will not sow. He who looks at the clouds will not reap. That's not the stuff that tells you what to do. Just as you do not know the path of the wind or how bones are formed in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you don't know the activity of God who makes all things. So, sow your seed in the morning and don't be idle in the evening. For you don't know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. So, I think this section is answering with a different perspective the same themes in the first one. Now, on page 16, let me just discuss the shape of this passage with you because it's extensive, all right? The bare outline of it is on page 12. You might want to put your finger back on page 12. I think this is the major section in the book which lays out Solomon's test. And are, are you you're going to come back and talk about this again tonight, right? So I won't go into a lot of the details. I just wanted to show you the shape of it and how it's put together. Solomon has three opening statements that deal with three themes he's going to discuss. He's going to discuss human works and activity, he's going to discuss wisdom, and he's going to discuss joy. And his opening statements are, man's works don't mean anything, wisdom doesn't mean anything, and joy is a waste of time. Then he says, but I decided to test all of this, and he discusses his building project, which we've mentioned several times. Then he evaluates the test, and he makes two evaluations. His first evaluation is, I looked at everything I'd done under the sun, and it was a total waste of time. I found that the deeds were worthless, the wisdom was worthless, the joy was worthless, and death is everywhere. Those are the four things he talks about. Then he looks at everything again in reverse order under God. God is absent from his first evaluation. Under the sun is not the rhetoric he uses in his second evaluation. And this time he says, our works are worthwhile, wisdom is worthwhile, joy is worthwhile, and death is not the last answer. So he gives two evaluations, one under the sun and one under God. So let's quickly look at this, and I'll just, since it's going to be dealt with again tonight, 
I won't go into the details of it. His opening statement deals with deeds and works. Just notice how it's done. Verse 13, I set my heart to explore all that is done under the heavens, an evil task God has given to the sons of Adam. I have seen the deeds that are done under the sun, and everything is vapor and shepherding wind. Then he says, what is crooked cannot be straightened, that's form. What is lacking cannot be counted, that's filling. Well, huh. then he talks about wisdom. I said in my heart, I've magnified and increased wisdom. My heart was set to observe an abundance of wisdom and knowledge. I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize this is shepherding wind. In wisdom, much wisdom is much grief. So there's his initial statement about wisdom. Doesn't seem to amount to much. Well, what about joy? And I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with joy and see the good in it. That too is vapor. I said of laughter, it's madness. Of joy, what does it accomplish? Those are his opening statements. And then he has his test. I explored in my heart to cheer my body with wine. Hey, that's joy. My heart was guiding me wisely. And how to grasp or restrain folly. That's his deed. So I could see things. And then he decides to make his own Garden of Eden. And we looked at this before. He forms it by building his parks. He fills it by getting male and female slaves and cattle and gold and singers. And then he summarizes it by saying, My wisdom stood by me. I did not withhold my heart from any joy. My heart rejoiced because of all of my labor. Those are his three things. Now, all this has happened, seems great. Now he steps back and takes a look at it as evaluation. 2.11, I considered all the deeds my hands had done, all the labor. It was all vapor and shepherding wind. There was no advantage, nothing gained under the sun. Six times he's going to say under the sun. Wisdom, he says. I turned to consider him wisdom, madness, and folly. Doesn't matter much. Death, he says the curse of death hangs over everything you do. The fate of the fool and of the wise men are the same. There's no lasting memorial for the wise men. He's still talking a bit about wisdom here. But it's all vapor. Deeds and works. I hated all the deeds that I had done under the sun. I have to leave it to the man who comes after me, and he may be a wise man or a fool. This too is vapor. I gave up my heart to despair over all the labor I had labored, all the deeds I had done. No good in that. And then joy. Human labor is cursed, he says. What does a man get in all his labor and his heartfelt striving under the sun? All his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night he doesn't get any rest. So there's no joy. That's his first evaluation. Under the sun. Then he looks at it again. He doesn't say under the sun. Not once in what follows. He says under the heavens once. But now he talks about before God and from the hand of God and how things look from that perspective. In reverse order, he says, there is no good in man. Mickey had an interesting translation. What was it? There is no good in man. There is no good inherent in man that he should eat and drink and tell himself his labor is good. But it's from the hand of God. Who can eat and have enjoyment without him? So, yeah, there is joy. He ended by saying there's no joy. Now he says, but from God there's joy. From your own activity, if you stay out here, 
outside the garden in the world, in the place of mist and natural revelation, you just don't get any reward. But if you look at it from the perspective of the sanctuary, instead of from the perspective of natural law, so to speak, then it's a gift, and you can be happy in it. Then he talks about deeds and works. He says, you know, well, before I was saying, I build all this stuff, and who knows what will happen to it, so work is I hate my work. But then he says, hey, you know what, under God, <laughs> the wicked are out here working by the sweat of their brow, and we're just sitting around eating and drinking and being merry. They're doing all the work for us. The sinner gathers and collects, and the man who loves God is given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Because God shepherds the wind and God controls the mist, he says. Then he talks about death again, and this is a famous section. There's a pointed time for every delight under the heavens. Seven times he puts the positive before the negative, and seven times he puts the negative before the positive. Time to give birth and a time to die. See, that's the opening statement. Death. Time to plant, a time to uproot. Those are the positive and then the negative. Then he reverses it. A time to kill and a time to heal. Time to tear down and to build up. All of these have to do with death. Death is under God's control. Death comes when God says it's right. We as images of God supposed to have wisdom to know when the times are right for various things but God does and then he ends up by saying wisdom and here the word God appears a bunch of times you just can circle each time what advantage is there for the worker is wisdom any good I've seen the task God has given the sons of Adam to afflict him man will not find out the deeds that God has done but there's nothing better than to rejoice and do good in your lifetime this is a gift of God. I know everything God does will remain forever. God has worked that men should fear Him. See, this is where He brings this section to its climax. Fear God. That's always kind of a climactic moment in the book. That which has been already and that which will be has already been. So he says, you know, it's still the case that change doesn't seem to happen in the world, but... God seeks what has passed by. Whatever that means, it means God sees it all. God remembers it all. God evaluates it all. So, orient your life toward God. Fear God means orient your six days of work to the seventh day where you come into God's presence. Orient the kingdom to the church. Orient your thinking to the Bible. Orient your activity to the eat, drink, and be merry that takes place in the liturgy and at the table. If you're oriented that way, then this stuff is still mist. But you know by faith that God controls the mist. He controls His glory cloud. He can manipulate clouds and mist. And He can shepherd wind. So, we'll hear more about this tonight at a practical level. But this seems to be the kind of programmatic section for the book. And it is, I think, matched on page 27 by the entirety of chapter 10. I don't think I'll go through that much. But he repeatedly talks about the fool and the wise man in, in the section we just looked at. And here he kind of amplifies all that. At the beginning and end of chapter... Well, actually it's an A, B, C... 
and then center. But the words of the fool come up in verse 1. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink, and a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. It doesn't take much to destroy what somebody else has built with a great deal of care and sensitivity. And then in verses 12, 13, and 14, he talks about words from a fool. Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of his talking is folly, the end of it is wicked madness. The fool multiplies words. No one knows what will happen, and who can tell him what will come after him? You can't talk to fools. Then he moves to the acts of a fool. In verses 2 and 3, a wise man's heart is toward his right, but the foolish man's heart is toward his left. Pretty bad to be left-handed, that's all I've got to say. I don't quite understand why he says it this way, but there you are. Even when the fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking and demonstrates to everybody that he's a fool walking along. Verse 15 picks this up again. The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to a city. He doesn't know how to walk along. Then he gets to rulers. In verses 4 and 5, the ruler's temper, the folly set in exalted places. In verse 16 to 20, Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility, whose princes know how to eat at the right time, who eat for strength and not for drunkenness, and so forth. And at the center of this, he talks about wisdom. Verses 8 to 11. There's an ABBA structure. 8 and 11 match each other. He who digs a pit may fall into it. A serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. If a serpent bites before being charmed, there is no advantage for the charmer. So you need wisdom. And then at the center, he who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits logs may be endangered. If the axe is dull and he does not sharpen it, he has to exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. And you understand, a blunt knife is more dangerous than a sharp knife. That's what he's saying. If the axe is dull, you have to swing harder, you're more likely to hurt yourself. It's more likely to bounce off and chop into your leg. But if you're wise, you sharpen your axe so that you don't have to swing as hard. It's safer that way. That's what he's saying. For those of you who've never chopped wood. But if you have a knife that you use in your kitchen, the same principle applies. Don't think you can sharpen a knife with one of these things. Right? That's to keep it sharp. You take it to a knife sharpener to sharpen a knife. Then you keep it sharp by using these things. Take your knives into a knife sharpener once every year or two. Get them nice and sharp. Then you'll be ready to face the enemies at the gate. All right. Now, this is kingly literature. And so the E sections talk about authorities moving in toward the center. As I say, we're not going to do everything. But just, just look at some of the things that are here. And I have to keep talking because I've got to go, you know. I've got to use up all my time. So let's see what else I can figure out to bloviate about here. In chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 is matched by 9, 13 to 18. 3, 16 and 17 says, Furthermore, I have seen under the sun. Now, I think this is where the center of the book starts. Now, he's made his initial statement. He's brought us to the fear God part. 
That's his initial statement. Now he starts in with some of the details. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. The rulers are wicked. The place of justice, the place of righteousness. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. A time for this and a time for that and a time for this and a time for that. That's not a despairing statement. He's telling you the wise man knows the right times and God controls the times and now he returns to that right here. God is in control of it. God will judge and there is a time. God knows when to let the wicked be on high. God knows when to give us bad Supreme Court justices who are going to exercise tyranny, <laughs> who are going to allow eminent domain to be used by any community that decides they want to wipe out all the poor people and build a strip mall. That's just absolutely appalling. But it's no surprise. I mean, if the police chief around here decided he wanted my house, all he'd have to do is plant some marijuana in my house, and then he could just take my house, and I'd never get it back. They do this all the time in this country. There's wickedness in high places. What is that called? Asset forfeiture. If you're found with drugs, the government can seize all your stuff. All of it. And you can't get it back. You'll be very fortunate if you ever get it back. So all they have to do is just plant a little drugs on you and they can say, ah, oh, we have to seize all your assets. Every bit of it. Dean Koontz, one of his novels, is about this. And he says in his appendix that there's thousands of cases of this. Just doesn't report it. All right, I'll get off of that. I'll talk about global warming instead. And more applications. Yeah. yeah. What's that? That's right. I stepped out of here. I made an application. I apologize. I'm sorry. That's not my place. I'm not going to talk about global warming. There's no such thing as global warming. Read Michael Crichton's new novel on global warming. Oh, brother. He's even got footnotes all the way through it. I love it. The guys who all believe in global warming, they're so liberal. They go out to New Guinea, and this global warming guy, he tells the intelligent scientists that's with him, he says, all oh, the Christians came up with all these myths about cannibalism out here. But there's no such thing as cannibalism. That was just racist talk. <laughs> well, they capture this guy and <laughs> they eat him. <laughs> they make him run a gauntlet and they all beat him with sticks to tenderize him. And then, they, and then they tie him to a tree and they start having human sushi off of him. Oh, it's pretty good. I mean, it's gross, but... <laughs> I, Somehow, I don't think Michael Crichton's going to be very popular with the establishment after this book. <laughs> Why am I talking about this? Because I, I don't know what to say about Ecclesiastes. Well, the matching section is in chapter 9, 13 to 18. Again, those who are wise are seldom given authority. This is the reality. He doesn't want us to have some fantasy view. The fantasy view is if... Our conservative, relatively conservative president appoints a good Supreme Court justice that's conservative, then that's going to change things. Well, we've been there, haven't we? Let's hope that things change. Let's pray that things change. But we might get another David Souter in there who just turns out not to be anywhere near as conservative as she or he appeared to start with. 
the king's heart is in God's hands. And if it's the right time to have wicked people in high places in order to scourge a nation, that's what he'll do. That's what the first section here says. Matching it in chapter 9, 13 to 18, is Seth. Also this I came to see is wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me, he says. Now you need to be impressed by this. If Solomon was impressed by it, we need to be impressed by it. So under the sun, in history, in a world of sin, under human government, all the things that that phrase connotes. There was a small city with few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. There was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength. The poor wise guy delivered the city. But the wisdom of the poor man is despised, and his words are not heeded. Nobody remembers it afterwards. Didn't we have a play on that last year? <laughs> a little bit. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Again, pulling up themes that he's discussed earlier, one sinner destroys much good. One bit of foolishness is more powerful in some ways than wisdom. It's more destructive. So it's a good thing that God is remembering everything and that God is going to make a final evaluation of everything. So we have to live by faith alone. You cannot live by sight. Out here in the mist, you can't live by sight. You can't live by natural revelation. Natural revelation is mist. Animals die and people die, and how can you tell what's the difference? In the animal world, it's the male animals that are pretty and the female ones that are plain. The Bible says it's the reverse in the human world. That's what it says. I didn't say it. That women are pretty and men are ugly. They're made of sugar and spice. Men are made of snakes and snails and puppy dog tails. Men are pigs. All right. He talks about death. That's the next section, F. Man and beast, he says. And what matches that is death, righteous and wicked. So in chapter 3, 18 to 22, mentioned this already, the fate of the sons of Adam and the fate of beasts is the same. One dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. There's no advantage for man over beast. Everything is vapor. Is that right? Well, he says, that's what I said to myself. They all go to the same place. All came from dust. All return to dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward? So he says, when you look at it, you can't tell. So in verse 32, 22, he answers it. I have seen that nothing is better than a man should be happy in his activities, for that's his lot. Who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Well, death will occur after him. And how do you know what that entails? In terms of the overall theme of the book, rejoice in your work because God tells you you can because he's in control. He's sovereign. The matching section is chapter 9, where he talks about how death comes to the righteous and the wicked, but you rejoice in the midst of it. Death, joy, death is the structure here. Verses 1 to 6, I have taken all this to my heart to explain that righteous and wise men, their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him in the future. It's all the same. 
It's the same for everybody. There is one faith for the righteous and the wicked, for the good, for the clean and the unclean, for the man who offers sacrifice, and for one who does not bring anything near. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. There is an evil done under the sun, and that is there is one faith for all men. And not ultimately, but under the sun, the fate is the same. You die. On the other side of the sun, when the sun is gone at the end of history, and the other side of this history, then the fate is different. There's history beyond the sun. But under the sun, furthermore, the hearts of the sons of Adam are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Their hearts are full of evil, comma, insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. That's a nice chiastic statement. The hearts are full of evil. Insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Hearts, evil, insanity, hearts. Afterwards, they go to the dead. For whoever is joined with the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. He's bringing up animals again here. Dead and living animals. Dead and living people. And then he matches that again in verses 11 and 12 at the end of the chapter. I saw it under the sun that the race is not to the swift, the battle is not to the warriors, neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. Chance. Oh, well, can't say that. Moreover, man does not know his time. Like fish caught in a treacherous net, birds trapped in a snare. See, more animal stuff about death. The sons of evil are ensnared in an evil time and it suddenly falls on them. What falls on them? Death falls on them. Like a fish on a hook or a bird in a snare. <laughs> They're dead, man. This is James Jordan interrupting to explain that the chirping sounds you're hearing are on the master tape. They're not a defect on your particular copy. Something went wrong while we were making the master at the lecture itself, and so there's nothing we can do about it. Perhaps next year we'll have a more sophisticated recording method. Now back to the chirping lecture. So, in the middle of the chapter, he says, even as he said earlier, in the priest form, be happy in your activities. He says, verses 7, go then eat your bread in happiness. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart. Bread, wine. Wow. God has already approved your works. Let your clothes white all the time. Uh Uh-oh. I've got some white here. There is some white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. <laughs> oh, that's right. The dry dead now, guys. All right. All right it's no back robe stuff, guys. White robe, oil. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all of your life, of your vape that he's given you under the sun, all the days of your vapors. Relationship with a woman, just vapor here. He brings all him. At any rate, enjoy life with it under the sun. In this vain life that you have, it's fun. We've been out in the fog, downtown. This is what in life and your toil with which you've labored under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there's no act you're planning or knowledge or wisdom to show where you're going. So under the sun is death. Because it's a gift of God, joy life. Well, I don't survey anything further except to call attention to the book. This will probably come up again. Uh, but once again, at the center of the book, he brings up where he explores this and he refers occasionally to the center, the worship center. 
eating and drinking, God, making me with God, hearing God, hearing God. The climactic book are where he has this fear God. And here's the, what I think for the book in Isaiah 1 to 7, and the beginning and the end of the second. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Here to listen. This is the word. You know, there's a lot there's more about eating and drinking in this book than there is about hearing the scriptures. But he, what is the house? I have to repeat this a bit. What do you hear? What do you hear when you come to the house of God? You hear the scripture. That's what the priests read at the portico of the temple. That's what the Levite reads to you in the synagogue. Because most people don't read and write. So that's what you hear. So guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen rather than to offer sacrifice of fools. What's the sacrifice of fools? It's when you bring an offering as a bribe to God rather than as an act of worship. They don't even realize they're doing evil. And matching that, in verse 7, he says, In many dreams and many words there is vapor. That's picking up from the previous things. Rather, fear God. Coming to the house of God is fearing God. Then the center of this is, Don't run your mouth off when you go to God. Instead, shut up and listen to Him. That's the center of this. Don't be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring a matter in the presence of God. God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. A dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, don't be late in paying it. He takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Don't let your speech cause you to sin. Don't say in the presence of the angel of God that it was a mistake. This means the priest. Practically speaking, in the ancient world, the priest is the angel or messenger of God. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? You're here to listen to God, not to have a whole bunch of things to say or to boast a bunch of vows to God. Rather, listen. That's what clues you into reality. So I think that's all I want to say about the book. We'll hear other kinds of things. You can examine this structure that I have here. I'm sure it can use adjustment. And as I say, there's more than one way to outline this book. But this is a way I've found that's helpful to me to organize the material that's here. Otherwise, it just looks as if he's talking about one thing after another. But he is reiterating certain themes, and I think they are from Genesis 1. It's forming, filling, lightning theme in the human dimensions. So, anybody want to raise any questions about this before we quit? Yes? What is the word there? 5-1. What is the word for sacrifice? Hebrew, it's 417. Guard your steps when you go to the house of the God. And then go near to listen. Then to tachet. Then to offer the fool's zavach. So, fellowship offering. Peace offering. For not they are ones knowing that they are doing ra. So this is... uh, peace offering of fools thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis podcast 
For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.